Welcome, Anthony Enrico. We are absolutely delighted to have you on board for the RevAmp podcast this week. Um, for those of us who don't know you already, please just uh, introduce yourself, your role, and, and who you work for, and then a little bit about your company. Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, really exciting to be part of the podcast and, and, and furthering learning of revenue operations. Uh, so my name is Anthony Enrico. I'm the Vice President of Worldwide Sales Operations for Emailage. Uh, email is a fraud prevention company um, focused on fighting fraud by leveraging intelligence on the email address. And we've also mostly, most recently, been acquired by a company called LexisNexis. Right. Pretty famous. Um, I, yeah, pretty famous. A, a good, good, good size organization, global organization, and, and really, really proud to be a part of LexisNexis as well. Um, been in sales, marketing, customer success for about 10 years. Uh, been in the field in a number of roles, and uh, but most recently really enjoyed uh, my time in sales operations. Fantastic. And when I was doing research with you, I, I discovered and I learned that aside from sales operations, you have a keen background in wrestling and mixed martial arts. Is that true? <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, been, I was a wrestler for about 12 years um, and coached uh, for a couple of years as well. And, and in off seasons, I would do mixed martial arts and Muay Thai, boxing, kickboxing. Um, you definitely learn a lot and, uh, and you know, it's, it definitely helps with uh, determination, discipline, and, you know, making sure that you can think quick on your feet as well. Absolutely. And I don't know if this is true, but I've heard from some of your team members that if they're not up to speed on their data hygiene, that, that sometimes you dip into your, your former career in mixed martial arts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's incentives, you have carrots and sticks, and, you know, that's my leadership style. So Great. <laughs> Keep everybody in line. So today we'll transcend it to wrestling, wrestling revenue. Uh, and how you go about that. I think um, one of the key things that stood out for me was was when you shared with with us in the uh, in the in the preparation for this, your move from multivariable sales and revenue um, modeling into uh, well, from what it was before uh, to to what it is now, and that strategic shift in both mindset and operations. And I think that that project itself transpired over a two-year period and uh, and really started to up gears around September of last year in the planning stages and then the second uh, phase of, of execution. Perhaps before we get into the, the bits and bytes of it, give us the before story. Why was the old way of working for the sales and revenue organization um, in need of a next phase? Just, just lay out the context for us. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think in in many early stage companies, um, you, you don't have a lot of time to sit and, and think about exactly how you're going to plan out your revenue revenue model for the future. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of fires to handle and, and a lot of um, uh, other other problems to work on as well. So um, essentially, we went from you know no real planning, just saying, hey, you know, this is how far we were able to get this year. Uh, let's let's try to work harder and push harder and 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 do better the next year. Um, that kind of morphed into a, another phase where we started to be a little intentional about a few things. You know, how many people should we hire um, throughout this throughout this year, and and how much investment, how much budget should we put into marketing, 
Um, so we started to handle a few variables, but it was always incomplete. And, and we always found ourselves in the middle of the year wondering why, what, why did we not get to the goals that, that we were, that we were hoping for? What did we miss? Um, so then it really moved to this paradigm shift of let's not, let's not look at revenue as just, Hey, how many salespeople are you going to hire? It's, it's a full organization wide initiative that really needs input from multiple departments and goes a lot deeper within each department than you would typically think. So why should sales ops and rev ops lead with this? Why should it be a higher priority than, than the normal workflow? What is it? What is it that makes it so compelling? Was there a specific data that informed your decision or do you have data now as you look backwards of, of what impact it's had, but why should this be a priority? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's two things. I think one, typically your sales operations organization, um, you have access to data that others may not. And, and not just access, but, but you understand the context of the data and you've been working with it day in, day out, that you really understand what's a trend, what's an anomaly, why are you seeing certain insights in the data that you have? Um, I think that's that's one of the main reasons that this is a great initiative to be led by sales operations. The second is you typically have some ground level knowledge um, with the teams. So you have relationships with the teams as well. So you're working day to day with sales, you're working day to day with marketing, customer success. Um, so you're getting that feedback of what's happening in the field and continues to add context to the data that you have. And then you can leverage this to start to piece together something for the future. Mm -hmm. So did this change the way that the C-level, the executive team saw the function of sales and revenue operations, this movement to the multivariable uh, model and, and that added layer of sophistication and, and accuracy? Did that change the relationship or the perception of the role? It was a huge shift, a huge shift. You know, we went from, we went from being a execution department um, to being a strategic leader in, in the organization. And, and I, can, I can sum this up in really one meeting uh, that I had with, with my CEO. I, I was presenting some, some data and this was earlier in the stage. And, and we were saying, you know, hey, based on last year, this is, this is how, how well we did and here's how well these things are operating. And, and here's, you know, if we do this and increase a little bit, here's how we can, here's, pro, here's where I'm forecasting we'll get to based on previous data. And he said, I don't care what we did last year. I want to know what we're going to do this year. And I want to know what it would take to get here. And that completely changed, it completely changed my mindset and it completely changed my approach to the problem to really say, yeah, why don't we look for ways in which we can build on, on certain variables and certain areas of the business to get to where we want to be rather than saying, hey, here's past year's trends and here's where it's going. Let's figure out how we can just take it to the next level. Hmm. That's probably the first time I've heard a conversation that, that articulated in a way that made me feel that, that your role is actually quite a creative process. That license to do things differently was, was probably huge, a huge permission to, uh, to reimagine the future. So that's, that's always encouraging for me because I love 
you know, creative uh, expression within any kind of business facing role. Um, and then I know from speaking to you before that the outcome of this change and this shift was that you were able to build a plan that was 15% higher than your basic model. Um, higher in terms of what? Higher in terms of revenue achievement or higher in what way? Higher in terms of revenue achievement. So the first iteration of the plan, we, we were looking at past trends and then we were forecasting those trends into the future. Um, and we weren't really taking a critical look at other areas where we could in, encourage growth. And, and that, that led to being able to create a plan where we could comfortably see how we could get 15% more revenue out of the plan if, if we focused on certain areas of, of the model. Um, and that wasn't typically the case. Typically we would set a high goal and then we would be confused why we're not hitting that goal in the middle of the year. And now we were able to see how we could push the goals even higher and what we need to do to get there. So if we kind of work that from the beginning, why was the classic rep capacity model um, not enough, you know, quarter times headcount, for example? Sure. Well, and that is the classic model, right? You say you open up a spreadsheet you say, I have this many reps. Here's how much quota they can carry. Let's hire more reps, give them quota, and then assume X percent might not make it. Um, and why does that not work? It's frankly just because it's incomplete. Okay. It, it's there's there's so much more going on. Um, and even if you look at just within your sales rep organization, two major variables that we really didn't account for um, was attrition. So you know you you don't typically put your spreadsheet up and say hey, I'm going to have X percent of my team quit throughout the year. And the other one is ramp time. How long is it going to take to get a salesperson, not just trained and ready on the product and able to articulate the value proposition, but how can we get them in a position to where they have enough pipeline, they have enough territory, and they're able to consistently close enough business in order to hit the quota targets that you have? And those two variables can drastically change your model. And that's just looking at a few extra things on the rep side. It's funny because when you talked about attrition, I feel like it's not something that leadership would normally want to have to factor into a model to report back to investors. You know, it's almost seen as a negative. We're going to plan <laughs> that we're going to lose 20, 30 percent, whatever the magic number is of our, of our sales team. It's also, also my, like a statement of failure from the outset rather than a statement of, of being genuine that, that it's normal within uh, within roles that have a really, uh, you know, a high turnover, relatively SDR sales or those kind of roles where people people move on um, at inconvenient moments. Um, but it's par for the course. So that completely makes sense. Um, and then why should the C-suite not accept the classic view of rep capacity modeling? So we're talking about it from the, uh, the other point of view, which is we, we started off with perhaps your point of view kind of almost bottom up and representing sales and the organization. And then from the top down, why should C-suite be equally as, um, as incentivized to, uh, to move to that model? What's, what's the paradigm shift for them? I think it falls in two areas. One is it gives them the opportunity to see how their ambitions can be met. So it, Every planning meeting like this went for me. I don't know if other sales operations professionals feel this way, but you go in with a plan and then the C-suite always asks that 
why isn't it why aren't you bringing more revenue in this plan <laughs> why 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 is it such a conservative plan um and this gives one it empowers you to say here are our opportunities to grow here's every lever that we have to pull which one do you believe we can put more fuel into in order to grow more so it, it's it's good for you as a sales operations professional because it it gives you a lot of ammunition to say to defend your plan and it's good for the c-suite because it gives them an opportunity to challenge the assumptions and say okay i don't i don't think we're going to lose that many salespeople, and we need to invest in these initiatives to make sure that we don't i think we need to invest in training to get people ramped up quicker and and it gives it gives both sides an opportunity to have a real practical intelligent conversation about what you want to do the next year very good so that now leads in nicely to the uh, the next question which is what are those actual variables that should be considered uh and i, I know there's a few there that, that you factored so so walk us through that please sure well first i'm gonna i'm gonna preface this with it depends your 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 business will will look different than mine um i can give a few that will probably be uh consistent across different businesses but i, I would I would take a long, hard, deep look at your business and, and think about what those variables could be. But here's a few to consider. Um, on the sales side, again, headcount is still important. How many people are you going to hire? Um, attrition, ramp time, um, and then um, attainment. You know how, how how much of these quotas and goals are are you expecting them to attain, and what you know what is acceptable. For, for bringing on a new hire or what do you need to attain? Um, the other the other area is of course marketing. So the, the classic view of marketing is, all right, what are my top performing lead sources? And where should I allocate more capital? The other question that I, I, I didn't hear as often is, what's the elasticity of that particular lead source? Meaning, how much can you affect? So let's say your, your top lead sources is, is website. If you put in a couple more million dollars into your website lead source category to making your website the best it can be, it, it does it actually make an impact? Whereas maybe outbound SDR isn't your top performing lead source. However, that's an area that you can impact with with adding more capital to it. So those are important. Do you have specific tools that help you inform, and I imagine market analysis will be another one of them, but do you have specific tools that's helped you to gauge the elasticity of those different areas of the business, um, like external tools that you've plugged in, or is it mainly by just been measuring your own, I'm guessing it can't be just by measuring your own internal numbers and metrics. There must be something else that you add on top of that. How, how have you done that? What, what does that look like? There are some tools that you can leverage that can help do these calculations for you. Um, we mostly just really, really engineered our CRM to be able to capture all of the data points that we needed. And on, on that particular question, what we're looking at is, we had a couple of years to look at some data. So we would say, what is almost, if you're thinking about evaluating a, a, a startup, like you don't look at just, just revenue, you look at the growth rate. So we would look at what's the growth rate of this lead source over time and that's where we know if we can put some more money behind it, it can continue to grow at that rate and we can foster that growth and get more revenue out of that lead source. So that's that's the 
that's the variable that we look for. Okay. And is there anything that we missed? I'm just looking through my notes here. So channel sales, you haven't mentioned that um, yet. What did you do with channel sales uh, as a variable? What do you do differently? It's, it's another area to, to look for growth. So you're looking at um, if we onboard X amount of channel partners, if we invest X amount into our top performing channel partners, um, how much more revenue do we believe we can we can get out of these relationships with these partners um that makes sense sorry go ahead no that makes sense it reminded me of a document i read four years ago on, on channel sales specifically and the uh the market research back then was five percent of your channel partners will be top performers and, and deliver a quota plus expectation 15 percent if you work them and and really um, put the effort into upskilling and educating them, they will then get up to a, a level similar to that 5%, and then the other 80% will never deliver no matter what you do. Um, and that was the kind of three tiers that was you know, seen across a kind of big piece of market research. I wonder if that rings true in some of your experiences that there's a certain opportunity and there's, there's others that are slow adopters. I would say that's absolutely true from my experience. There's a few key partners who really they, they understand your product. There happens to be a real strong synergy with their offering and, and they're really going to be a strategic partner and, and the rest are just going to waste your time. You're, you're, you're going to, you're going to dump a lot of time into training and enablement and going on sales calls with them and, and it may never take off. Um, and those are, and those are longer cycles than training up your own internal team, right? That can be, six months, nine months to get them up and running and, and truly uh, educated. So the ROI can be painful. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Very cool. So how will, uh, how will this drive engagement across the organization? How will the steps that you've taken beyond uh, just those variables drive engagement across the organization? Yeah, it, it really drives a sense of accountability. Um, and typically you might think that that, may come with a level of resistance, but it was actually very healthy for, for our teams. Um, because, because I think at the end of the day, everybody wants to be a contributor to the mission and the goal, and they want to know how they can be. And that's where you can enlighten some of the teams as to where they fit in the overall goals. And rather than just saying, hey, this is a sales and, and marketing issue, you know, channel doesn't have to worry about it. Product doesn't have to worry about it. Our finance and pricing teams don't have to worry about it. It's just the sales team. Go, go get us the revenue. Um, it really brings everybody together and everybody can see where they fit. And, and something tangible that we built, um, you know, we, we, we put this into, I, I know it's a little old school, but we put it into a spreadsheet and, <laughs> and, and everybody could see where their variables were and could adjust their options and they could see in real time, hey, this is how it would impact. If in marketing, if you're able to turn this lead source from this to this, this is how it can impact the whole organization. Right. Um, so it really drove a lot of engagement. And to deliver that, you just shared the spreadsheet or you had to kind of do some, uh, some training days with the wider team, the other lines of business. How did, you, uh, how did you roll that out in real terms? Is it just intuitive? No, not intuitive. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's a full, it's a full fledged, uh, lobbying process. I would say, um, you know, sitting first, you, you, you have to really, really understand 
every area of the business. Um, this is this was not this was not us coming up with assumptions of things that we didn't understand. We had to go sit with every leader in the business, understand what they're working on, understand what they believe they can affect, and then help them build their portion of the model. Um, so it's a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with leaders, with individuals. And, and this is why earlier in, in, in the conversation, you asked why, why should sales operations lead this? Well, because you have those relationships, you have, you have that knowledge of the departments just by nature of the type of data you're working with every day. And, and it helps to create an environment to make this process easier if you're the one leading it. Um, and people, people typically trust you too. You're, 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 you're there to help all of those teams, right? So they're, they're willing to, to work with you on this. So you must have set aside a certain amount of time for the planning stages before the execution so that you had time to do those conversations and, and learn their priorities and their language, et cetera. How long was the typical planning phase or stage for you in this project? Yeah, great question. Um, in, in general, uh, our, our fiscal year is a calendar year and we would start the planning process around September. Um, and that's, that's kind of where you get the high level ambitions, things that we want to accomplish for the next year. And then we would have everything fine tuned uh, more or less by November. And then we would get all the final approvals and sign-offs and everybody saying, yes, this is what I'm signing up for um, by early December. And then in, in January, it's it's go time. And then so you start delivering in January and then you probably have a certain period after that where you review and, and look back and reflect. And then was there a kind of a flywheel of of taking that learning and then doing another phase of, uh, of development or was it just completely harmonious from that point onwards? I wish it was just harmonious from that point. That would be great. Um, <laughs> um, it, it, in general, we would uh, we would officially review monthly to 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 see how all of our assumptions were uh, were performing, um, and then we would have something a little bit more official for like a board report or something like that uh, quarterly. Um, so we we would follow it on that cycle and then make adjustments. So one thing to keep in mind is is that things change assumptions that we made in september may be totally different in in july and i think this is a great year that that shows that right it's nobody anticipated the coronavirus to have this level of impact and and you need to be able to make adjustments real time and this also helps you be more agile you know because you can open up your model and you can look oh this is where we're having issues we're not able to drive as much lead development as we were before because of the environment we're in. Is there something else we feel maybe overperforming that we can compensate for? Or how do we make adjustments? You know where to make adjustments. And then uh, I usually ask this and didn't today, were there any core pieces of technology that enabled you to deliver, you know, over the last 12 month period, looking backwards, or the core pieces of technologies, even maybe a little bit longer, that enabled you to execute this model uh, effectively without hitches? I, we're talking, you know, on this podcast with sales and revenue operations leaders to to those. And one of the most obvious questions that people want to know is, well, what did you use to to execute with? Um, you know, what was your essential stack? How did you use it better or differently? How did you connect it? Um, yeah, what were the obvious kind of building blocks with technology that you put in place? We had quite a bit, um, and and the most important thing is that you're 
you're capturing the right data that you need. And this could be a whole other conversation, of course, but that's my next question. Don't spoil it. We'll spoil it for you. This is <laughs> this question is to lead into that question. <laughs> okay. Well, um, it, so it's from a technology perspective. Uh, you need to make sure you have the right technologies that makes it easy for your team to input all the data that you need. Okay. So uh, it's it's going to be a, a great CRM. Um, it's going to be um, a great marketing automation tool. You have to have a good CPQ. You have to have, and then you have to have um, some 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 data um, manipulation software as well. So you can leverage a couple things. Um, we did a lot of stuff in Tableau. Um, but you can also, some of the out-of-the-box um, reports and dashboards in your CRM could be, could be good enough, given that you have the right data, and you have to make sure you have the right culture with your team. So, so your team, you know, they, they have to understand why it's, it's critical that their pipeline is accurate, that their forecast is accurate. Um, they have to understand how mission critical every piece of data they enter into any tool they're using is. And you really have to foster that environment by making it so unbelievably easy for them that, that they do that. And because if you don't, I, I, I've been, I've been there where you just end up not having any data to use. It's not, it, it's essentially worthless and there's no way you can get to the stage without having that initial data first. So I take it that for your company in particular, your data is perfect, or is that is that an overstatement? What, what, <laughs> what is the what is the new reality for you guys? Do you work with imperfect data? Is that is that part of it? Everybody works with imperfect data, absolutely. And uh, so no, it's not perfect. It, it it has to be it has to be good enough. Um, and and I think that's we would get that question a lot. It, it would be you know in the first year. You, you might not have year-over-year -year growth rates on stuff. You may not have some of the, the variables or information or data you need. And that's where a tool that we use is and not a technology, more just a method, is, um, is a sensitivity analysis. So essentially, you, you put a couple variables together and you just make the most reasonable assumptions that you can based on, based on as much knowledge and data you do have and then you provide the ranges to say, hey, you know, attrition, maybe maybe it's your first real year of hiring. Maybe you don't have attrition data before. You could say, well, here's other companies, here's how bad it could be, but here's kind of where we're hoping for, but at least you have the range to help give you an idea of where that variable might be. Um, and you have to do that. We're all, we're all it's almost like, um, it's almost like going to Vegas. You're taking bets every day. You're making calls. You're you're making decisions. You're not you, you're not going to have perfect data, it, or else it would just be choices. If it was perfect data, it'd just be choices. But we're in the business of making decisions, and and this is why. Nice. So now, as you look back on on where the project is now and and where it's come from, I think you've been through kind of two phases of rollout and learning and and everything else. What have been the surprises along the journey for you? Um, or what went better than expected? I, I, either question, whichever you prefer. What went better than expected is I, I think the alignment that it created. I was, I was expecting that this would be hard and I was expecting that people would not be happy to 
commit to, you know, your, your variable in the model. Like, oh, I have, I have to commit to this now just because you say so. I, I thought it was going to come with a lot of pushback, um, but I was quite surprised that it really aligned everybody around the same mission and, and fostered an environment of collaboration and, and real honest, critical thought. It, 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 it broke down a lot of political games and showboating and, and really just said, hey, how do we get to where we all want to be? And how, how do you play a part in that? I love that. Uh, and I love the fact that it's uh, also delivered uh, a tangible benefit too. that 15% additional growth is something that everybody can be proud of who, who decided to opt in to, uh, to this line of thinking and execution and, and be a part of that. So it's nice that it's not only feels better and more collaborative, but it tangibly has delivered something better uh, and more effective. So that's a huge credit to, to all of your team, all that were involved. And I think, uh, Anthony, this session has been really <clears throat> illuminating and valuable. I've learned from it. And uh, I'd like to thank you on behalf of everybody watching here on the RevAmp podcast for, for coming on board and sharing your wisdom and your experiences. And of course, we'd love to hear about your continued success in the future. Absolutely. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Anthony. And bye for now.